from a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Ohio State Microbiology Professor Matthew Sullivan studies coevolution of microbes and viruses in environmental populations. He will speak on February 19th at The Ohio State University's Science Sundays on the topic, Understanding Ocean Viruses May Just Save the Earth and Help Cure Your Next Ailment. More information about his talk can be found at crafttheshow.com. Welcome to Craft, Professor Sullivan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, tell me about your upcoming talk, which is open to the public. How can ocean viruses impact our health? Well, um, ocean viruses don't impact your health, but the ways that we study and learn about viruses in your body um, uh, are learning are gaining a lot from ocean virus research. Okay. So tell me about the ocean virus research. What are you looking at when you went to the ocean with the Tara Ocean Expedition? Well, the Tara Expedition was a three-year sailboat that went around the world with a lot of oceanographic equipment to try to understand uh, patterns of diversity of viruses to fish larvae. And um, on that project, we were simply trying to map what kind of organisms were out there and use that as a baseline to study oceans and the way they're changing. Okay. Now, with something like the oceans, when you go out to study it, it's vast. And you're taking samples, uh, you know, at, I understand it, many other many places in the ocean. Um, but it's got to, see, it seems to me like if you have tropic oceans or, or uh, the Atlantic or something like that, they're going to have really different populations of viruses. Is that what you found? Yeah, in a way, um, the larger organisms seem to have stronger biogeography or differences in different places. And the viruses um, actually seemed that everything was everywhere. We found a lot of the kinds of viruses that we'd find were basically in lots of different places and just their abundances, which would change. Tell me about how you're going to use the information about those viruses to uh, look at, say, the way it impacts people's health. Right. Uh, so on the TAR, the neat thing that we did was design quantitative approaches, ways to be able to count viruses. And if you think about viruses, um, you can't see them. Sometimes you can count them with a fancy microscope. And when you count them with a fancy microscope, that actually doesn't tell you that much about, for example, who they infect or anything about their genome or underlying genetic material. So what we did is we developed a quantitative sequencing-based approach that could be um, uh, conducted on the back of a sailboat uh, with no space at all uh, that you could collect those samples for, and then uh, have almost no material and still develop data sets that we can make inferences from back in the laboratory. Help us understand and answer that simple question, which viruses are where and okay. why. What was the choice of the sailboat instead of maybe a larger boat that had uh, an engine um, <laughs> more than a sailboat? I think there's the uh, secondary engine on a, lot of, on a sailboat this size because it was roughly 120 feet uh, as a schooner, right? Right. So the story of the Tara, which will be featured in the fr front half of, of my talk, um, is a really interesting one. There's there's basically a, a woman who runs a clothing uh, a line in, in Europe. Her, her name is Agnes B. And um, she has a cousin who loves to sail. And she also likes to contribute to science and getting out and letting her company help support people studying. And so this was, frankly, a boat of opportunity. Uh, she made it available for three years, was willing to let us make a lot of modifications. And, um, you know, getting seven scientists uh, around the world for three years is is not inconsequential nor is also very costly. Mm -hmm. So it was, the boat was our option. Walk me through a typical day on the boat when you were on the boat. How long were you on it? 
Actually, so I wasn't on the boat because I get horribly seasick. <laughs> but okay. um, in fact, we were on the, on the dock one day and I thought, oh, I couldn't possibly go on this boat. She's she's built in a way such that she has very little draw. And uh, so she rocks a lot on the mm. ocean. But um, a number of brave souls, many postdocs and graduate students did go. And uh, a typical day is is traveling because, as you alluded to, the ocean is a vast space. And, um, and every few days we would have a 24 to 48 hour sampling and and that really was incredibly intense and so these are uh, students and postdocs and and some faculty that went um, that would be working nearly non-stop for quite a long time so 24 to 48 hours and in between they would be labeling bottles and setting up tubes but the goal of a sampling um, effort is you'd get lots of water on board the ship, you'd put it through lots of different filters, and each of us with our different specialties would um, would take our different filters, and then there would be experts of each of the different kinds of organisms. So my group would be experts of viruses, others would be experts of bacteria, others are experts of small zooplankton which feed fish, or fish larvae. Um, and so each of those experts would sample their favorite size fraction and make sure that the samples either got looked at and or preserved in ways that we could look at them more deeply back in the lab. Tell me about some of the things that you found looking at them back in the lab. What were some of the surprising things that you saw that you weren't expecting? At this point, we've um, successfully saturated sampling ocean viruses. So they are a big space. And a big surprise to us was that um, within the constraints of our sampling, it looks like there's no more than about uh, a few tens of thousands of species of viruses in the oceans, and we've captured many, if not all of them. What about really deep? I mean, how far down did you go? You know, you always see these weird fish that have been living in the Marianas Trench. Is that uh, something that you accounted for, the depth? So we've not gotten all the way to that deep. That would be 10,000 meters or something like that. But um, <laughs> we, uh, we sampled as deep as 4,000 meters, which is quite deep, and into the right. dark part of the ocean where there's no sunlight. Uh, and so we do have a good glimpse of both the surface and then um, what's called the aphotic zone, but we don't have the, the okay. hadal regions like okay. where the trench. Did the, uh, the aphotal zone show different kinds of animals, I assume? Different kinds of life, rather? Yeah, there was strong depth structuring. So the aphotic and photic zones look very different. And that, of course, reflects the kinds of organisms which could grow there as potential hosts. What are some of the implications of what you've done? What are some of the things that have grew out of this research that um, maybe are applicable to people's health or saving the earth? I think there's two big things that help a lot. The first one is um, that big catalog of new virus genomes. It augmented known virus genomes 15-fold. And, and when I use the word virus, it's actually viruses of microbes. Um, so I should make sure that's an important caveat. Okay. I don't study human viruses. I study the viruses that infect the microbes in a human body uh, in soils or in the oceans. And so these viruses, there were about 2,000 known, and now there's about 30,000 known. So, so that's the first way. And the second thing is um, uh, we learned a lot about the kinds of ways viruses are manipulating the metabolisms of the microbe. So um, you may or may not know that uh, on Earth, most of the nutrient and energy transformations that happen, happen thanks to enzymes and microbes. So they're controlling the flow of nitrogen, carbon, phosphorus, sulfur. Um, and this, this is really important for um, thinking about the redox chemistry that runs the Earth. And so what we learned here was that viruses have stolen those key enzymes 
and they're probably using them to their own benefit, but it's an interesting coevolutionary uh, dance, if you will, that they're doing. And so we're trying to start to learn that. Something. You said you, you're studying the viruses that infect microbes that then are present in a lot of different species of animals because you said it, it controls the flow of energy. Did you, then I think you said there were 2,000 and now there are 30,000 known. Did you get to name any of these uh, or are they all uh, like RG72143? Are there any new discoveries? Um, yeah, so there's many new species and, um, and we're a pretty systematic group. So our naming is a numbering scheme. And so what we tend to think of is they're going to get numbers until they become important. And when they're important, we rename them. And that's the way we've done in, in a lot of microbial ecology. So, so a SAR-11 is now known as a Pelagibacter because it turns out that SAR-11, which is a numbered microbe, is everywhere on the world's oceans. And so we thought we'd follow the same path okay. with viruses. Did you uh, notice anything um, about the biodiversity in areas that were more uh, polluted? Say, I know there's a big floating garbage dump in the ocean. Uh, is that something you noticed, or is this just they're pretty consistent, like you said, everywhere, even next to pollution, next to poisons? Yeah, the Tara project did have um, special, they're called bongo nets out, to be able to get um, and sample what are called microplastics. And so there is a project specifically devoted to looking at the microplastics. And um, because of the nature of those samples, there's no virus information yet for those. Uh, so I don't, I can't speak to it other than it was, we didn't sample for it in many different places in the world's oceans. When you spoke to the researchers who went on the Tara, how did they describe the experience? Did they say that they, it was transformative or did they come back as I might say and say, I'm never going to go on a boat again because it made me sick? Yeah, you know, an, an oceanographic cruise is a pretty special transformative moment for anyone, even when it's a real boat uh, and a real research vessel. And, you know, you go out to sea for a couple of weeks and, and you let go of your normal daily patterns and um, and you, you breathe the sea air, so to speak, in a very different way. And I think that's augmented tenfold when it's something like a sailboat and you're out for a month or longer. And some people did multiple legs and particularly because of the Tara and the way she was built with that low draw. She was able to get to some spectacular places. Um, in fact, she's currently out in the South Pacific studying almost untouchable, pristine coral reefs. So very shallow water features that are difficult to get. So I think the people who went, everyone I've talked to, came back transformed in love with the ocean, <laughs> though cautiously optimistic, of course, for the, the rougher portions of the did any of them uh, talk to you about, uh, say, going back out on and saying, you know what, I'm done with in the lab stuff? Because a lot of times scientists are sort of pegged as they're in the lab, they're they're never leaving. Um, did, did any of these people say, okay, from now on, I'm only doing field, if that's even a possibility and not going back to the lab nearly as much? Yeah, I think um, I think there's a draw for that, certainly. the The people who work in my group recognize the balance of both being at home and in your bed now and then so not being too afraid to avoid being out in the field all the time but also the balance of going out to the field and sort of observing nature and then coming back and studying it and that's particularly true because we study sort of the smallest biological entities if you will so we can't learn a lot about viruses in the field it's it's very difficult to to put anything together in the field and so uh, i think one of the nice things is back in the lab we can see them so to speak, in many different ways. Okay. Can you give us just a really quick idea about the kinds of things you do at Ohio State in your lab 
and, you know, break it down as, as sort of generalized as possible and say, this is, you know, what I would do uh, with a sample from the boat, how it would be treated in a, you know, a really high level kind of way. Sure. Yeah. When So when we get that great shipment of months and months of sampling, uh, it's usually frozen. And we would um, put those into different kinds of freezers, depending on the sample. And then when it comes time to process them, uh, we purify the viral particles on a, on a, using a special gradient, and then take those purified viral particles and extract nucleic acids, either DNA or RNA, depending on what we're after. And, uh, and then those, uh, we make what's called a sequencing library, and that gets sent out to a genomic sequencing center. We get those data back, and uh, and that's when the magic happens. That's when you have to try to decode, you know, hundreds of millions to billions of bases, uh, base pairs, and and make sense of that biological code. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I failed to sort of finish my other point about why does this matter for humans? Um, the informatic or the computational approaches that we've developed to study these ocean viruses uh, do many simple tasks that are critical for uh, studying viruses and microbes anywhere. So what is that? One, everything we see when we study viruses and microbes is pretty much new. So when it's new, how do you put that in a framework? So we've developed a, it's, it's a network-based taxonomy, so a way to classify these viruses. And then once you've got them classified, um, we've been developing ecological approaches to ask, well, how abundant is that species? And, and when you look at that species genome, what can you say about the way it might interact, either who it infects, what metabolisms it's manipulating, what kind of virus it is um, from the genes that are there. What are your next steps with uh, the projects that you're working on? What are the things that you're looking forward to in the future? Um, As I suggested, we studied pelagic water ocean samples. And so those are the ones that are in big regions of, of aqueous part of the ocean. We're, we're now focusing on some of the special features of the oceans, like trenches, like hydrothermal vents, coral reefs. So that's exciting to think about how those populations might be different. Um, and then outside the ocean work, we've now got, um, we're studying viruses in soils and along a permafrost thaw gradient. So understanding how um, as climate change warms permafrost soils, uh, how is that going to change the release of greenhouse uh, gases that are produced by the microbes in those soils? In those soils, there's um, about a third of, of the Earth's soil carbon is locked up. So that's being released because the Arctic and the Antarctic are warming faster than, than anywhere else. Um, and then the last place that we're studying is, is in the human body, both in the human gut in the context of studying um, uh, how viruses and microbes might impact autistic children and um, also in the human lung in the context of studying uh, important lung diseases like COPD or the rejection of lung transplant success. Matthew Sullivan, I really appreciate your talking to me today and look forward to your February 19th talk with Science Sundays at The Ohio State University. Thanks so much. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.